stand for the reading of God's Word. We continue in our series through the ministry, prophetic ministries, lives and ministries of Elijah and Elisha. This morning we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Remember, remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Please keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me now to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then Elisha took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, I've got a problem, and I need your help. It's a problem with nostalgia, okay? I can't hardly look at a family picture of my kids when they were small without tearing up, okay? It's a real problem in our house. In fact, just the other night, we were watching a show, and when we were finished, 
Stephanie's iPhone, it, you know, it, it puts together some of those albums for you. Sometimes you don't know when or how it does it, but it had put together an album of the kids when they were younger and it generated it. It popped it on Stephanie's iPhone. She was happy and excited. And she says, I'd like to mirror that on the TV. I'd like to screencast that on the TV so we can look at it together, to which I promptly said, no, thank you which did not go over well with Stephanie. We had a dialogue, if you will, but I did not watch the clip. And as I've analyzed it and evaluated it, I think when I look at the pictures, I feel like something is gone that can never be recovered. And so it saddens me. It should give me a feeling of excitement and joy but for whatever reason, it gives me a feeling of loss, so it's hard for me to look at these things sometimes. And of course, I felt even more keenly, as you can imagine, when we dropped off our oldest son to college. People would ask me, how's it going? When are you gonna drop off Cole? I would say, would you please stop it and be quiet and not mention it? And then after we dropped him off and I came back to the office, Allison Averett asked me so many times, how did it go? To which I said, please stop asking me. I don't want to talk about it. I think Elisha, the prophet, might have been wired the same way. Because when the sons of the prophets came up to ask him numerous times, are you aware that Elijah, your master, is going to be taken away from you today? He said, be quiet, please don't mention it. He's a man after my own heart. Not only did Elisha not want to talk about it, did you notice in the text, he had to be physically blocked from going with Elijah? which brings up a number of questions for the morning. Where was Elijah going? What did it mean that he was being taken? Okay, why was this happening to begin with? And how does this story contribute to the greater storyline of the Bible? Four questions that we mean to get answers to. So I think we've got a good bit to sort through, but I think by the end, we're going to be very encouraged and edified because this really is a wonderful, wonderful, encouraged, redemptive passage from the Old Testament. Let's look at the text, verses 1 through 3. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, now the chariots of fire and the horses of fire, those are angels. Those were not physically taking Elijah up. They play a different role. Elijah was being taken up by the whirlwind, as it were. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha, they were on their way from Gilgal. Now, I've included a map on purpose. Hopefully, you've all got one. Geography and this text is very important. Verse 2, Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. In other words, here we are in Gilgal. You can see in your notes, if you look, if you kind of identify where Israel is, in all caps, in bold, kind of in the middle of your map, you go south from there, go down from there, there's Gilgal. That's where they start. 
Okay? So Elijah says, I'm going to Bethel, and he wants Elisha to stay in Gilgal and let him go alone. Verse 2, Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, this is an oath. He's taking an oath, a vow, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Now, for the original reader, this was being written to the exiles, okay, as they were about to come home. The original reader would have been totally shocked by this. This was coming out of nowhere. Elijah had faithfully and sacrificially served the Lord under great duress for many years, and now out of nowhere, he is abruptly being taken away, taken somewhere else. Elisha in the text, obviously, he's very unhappy about it. He doesn't like these turn of events. He's not leaving Elijah's side. Okay, let's look at the map again, and let's check out their route. They start off in Gilgal, then they move down to Bethel, then they go east to Jericho, and you see that little windy uh, line, that's the River Jordan. So they go from Gilgal, south to Bethel, east to Jericho, then they cross the Jordan River and go into the Transjordan area. At each point, Elijah tries to get Elisha to stay behind, but Elisha won't. He refuses, okay? Elisha is supposed to stay behind because he can't come. He's not allowed to join Elijah yet. And I think he feels like these sons of the prophets are kind of pouring salt into the wound, okay? We don't know exactly why the sons of the prophets kept quasi-antagonizing Elisha with the question that they knew would irritate him. It's possible they were jealous of Elisha. It's possible they were jealous because maybe they viewed Elisha to be Elijah's, like the teacher's pet, okay, or something like that. So they're kind of pouring salt in the wounds, rubbing it, rubbing it in. Do you know that your master's going to be taken away from you? He's like, I know, I get it. Please be quiet. Go to verses 6 through 8. Let's skip ahead just a little bit. They're now close to the Jordan River. Then Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here. You know, stay on the west side of the Jordan River. Please stay here. For Yahweh, the Lord, has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. The third time he's made this vow. So the two of them, you know, Elijah gets it. He's, he's like, all right, let's go. The two of them went on. Verse 7. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went. So what we're finding out is they're following these two everywhere they go, these sons of the prophet. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as the two men were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak 
and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Okay, so the sons of the prophets are following them from a distance. They probably are there to watch and see Elijah being taken up. Perhaps they also want to see if Elisha becomes his successor. If not, remember in the text, it wasn't clear. Can we agree? It was not clear whether or not Elisha would be his successor. That was kind of left as an open question initially. Maybe these sons of the prophets were there to see if they could see him go up. You know, if Elisha wasn't confirmed as his successor, maybe there would be room for one of them. They see something they weren't expecting. They see Elijah take off his prophetic cloak and strike the Jordan River, and the Jordan River parts. Now, does this remind you of anything? This parting of the Jordan River. And the writer of 2 Kings points out something. He points out that they crossed over on what does the text say? That's not some like coincidental detail. They crossed over on what? On dry ground. Friends, this is hearkening back to something. It's hearkening back to something in Joshua 3 that is incredibly important. Okay, let me read from Joshua 3. Just to, if you have your map there. Briefly, the Israelites, you will recall, they'd been freed from Pharaoh's oppressive hand. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then when it's time for them to enter into the promised land, they're on the west side of the Jordan. They cross over the Jordan and they go west. I'm sorry, they're on the east side of the Jordan. So when they get there, they're on the east side. They go west, they cross over, and then they um, transition over into the promised land. Okay, so imagine the Israelites in Joshua 3. They are on the east side of the Jordan. They are to the east of Jericho, and they're about to cross over. They're going west, and they're going to inhabit the promised land. Joshua 3 reads, As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan River, and their feet touched the water's edge. The water from upstream, it stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap a distance away, and it was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho, meaning they are to the east of Jericho. All of Israel crossed over until the whole nation had, completing, had completed the crossing on dry ground. Have you noticed the route that Elijah takes, okay? Elijah is taking the route that the Israelites took, but in reverse. It's a mirror image of what the Israelites did when they were east of the Jordan and crossed over. So when the Israelites came, they're east of the Jordan. They go west. They cross over. What's the first place they come to? Jericho. Then they go from Jericho to Ai to Bethel and then ultimately Gilgal. 
Where did Elijah start? Elijah starts in Gilgal. He goes south to Bethel. He goes over to Jericho. Then he crosses and goes to the east side of the Jordan River. What in the world does this mean? This is a very intentional statement that Elijah is making. Geography is important. Elijah was being taken. Okay? The Israelites, when they're on the east side, they went west, they cross over. Where were they going? Where were they going? They were going to Canaan. They were going to the promised land. Elijah crosses over on dry ground. Where is he going? He's being taken up where? To the true Canaan. To the true promised land. Canaan was not the ultimate resting point for the people of God. That dusty land in Palestine was not God's people, was not their ultimate destination. The ultimate destination for the people of God is the true Canaan, the heavenly Canaan, the promised land. It is amazing what's happening here. Elijah, perhaps the greatest Old Testament prophet, is going to the true Canaan after he crosses over the Jordan River. What was Canaan in the Old Testament? What was the promised land? It was, it was the resting place for God's people. Okay, but it was just a type. What do I mean when I say the word type? T-Y-P-E. It was a sign. It was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of a greater reality. The greater reality is the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it is. How do you conceive of Canaan? What's Canaan going to be like? The true heavenly Canaan. The real promised land. The Bible gives us a picture. It gives us a picture in two places. In Genesis before the fall and Revelation. What is the real Canaan like? Where are you and I going? We're going to the real Canaan. Think the Garden of Eden, but better. Who here has read the book of Genesis, read how the Garden of Eden is described, how wonderful it is, how it was, how Adam and Eve, what did they walk with God? They walked with God in what? How does the text describe it? Like in the cool of the day. Fellowship with God Almighty in a paradise in the cool of the day. Who here has not desired to see what that was like? Who here would not have wanted to been there with Adam and Eve just to experience and how wonderful it is? The real Canaan is the Garden of Eden, but infinitely better, so much better. That's where Elijah was going. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. That's not Elisha being greedy or asking for an inordinate inheritance or anything like that. What is that a, what is that a, a euphemism for? The double portion was the portion the oldest son would receive. He's asking, in a sense, for a full inheritance. What is he asking for? He's asking for 
Elijah to make him his full successor when Elijah is taken to glory. So he's asking to be made and confirmed as Elijah's full successor. Okay? Verse 10. Elijah, he's basically saying, I'm not in control here. In verse 10, Elijah said, you have asked for a hard thing. It's not like he's saying this is too difficult. I may not have the power to do this. That's not what he's saying. When he says to him, you have asked for a difficult thing, what do you think he's asking or saying? He's saying, you're asking for a hard thing. You're asking for a heavy thing. You're asking for a weighty thing, a significant and solemn thing. He's saying to Elisha, have you counted the cost? Do you understand what's coming? The life of a prophet in Israel was not easy. It was a heavy thing, a weighty thing. Verse 10, Elijah said, you have asked for a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. That'll confirm that you are receiving this prophetic mantle, if you will. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Elijah did not know. God was sovereign over this. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire. We're going to find out later. These are the chariots of the living God. This is an army of the living God that have come there for a very specific reason. They have not come to take Elijah. What have they come to do? They have come to separate Elisha from going with Elijah. It was not Elisha's time. It took an army to keep Elisha from going with his mentor, with his father in the faith. He loved Elijah. He would have sacrificed everything to go with him, but it was not time for Elisha to go. One day it would be, but today was not that day. Verse 11, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. They're like saying, you can come this far, Elisha, but you can come no farther. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha, he saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father. In other words, I'm seeing it. I'm being confirmed as your successor, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. He's further confirmed in 12 and a half through 14 where he with Elijah's cloak, he strikes the Jordan River. He can go back into the promised land on dry ground. He had been confirmed in this gift. Friends, what is the point of this story? The point of this story is that Elijah is being taken to glory. It confirms Elisha as his successor, but even more, it confirms and communicates to the reader that Elijah has been taken to glory. Now, it's interesting. Now, this is, this, this is amazing stuff. What's the verb, the Hebrew verb that's used five times to describe what happens to Elijah? He's taken, he's taken, he's taken, he's taken, he's taken. Five times this Hebrew verb is used to describe what happens to Elijah. He was taken. That alludes to something in the past, and it foreshadows something future. Five times it's used, alludes to something in the past, foreshadows something future. Do you know what it is? 
What does it hearken back to in the past? Who's the only the other person in the Old Testament who went to glory apart from death? Enoch. In Genesis 5, we read out of nowhere that Enoch walked with God, and the root Hebrew verb is he was taken to be with the Lord. It harkens back to that. Go to Acts 1. Now, obviously, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Now, if you, everybody needs to wake up, take a sip of their coffee, like just... There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Many people by Jesus' day, they couldn't, they couldn't read Hebrew. So they needed the Old Testament in Greek. And so when Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, when he describes what happened to Jesus in his ascension, he uses the Greek word... So in the Greek, I know, I know y'all doing the math here. Luke uses the same word. The Septuagint translates 2 Kings. Septuagint is written in Greek. The word for taken in 2 Kings 2 that's used by the Septuagint in Greek is the same word that Luke chooses when Jesus ascends to glory after his resurrection. Let me read this to you. It is incredible how the entire Bible is one unified storyline from beginning to end. You think they all just thought this up in retrospect? You think it's an amazing coincidence? Let me read to you from Acts 1. They gathered around Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. They gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was what? Taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently. So they're like, wow. They are amazed that Jesus has been taken into glory. Suddenly, two men dressed in white appear, stood beside them, said, men of Galilee. These are angels of the living God. Said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been what? Taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him Go. There is a very clear connection. God has the power to circumvent death, to work around death. He has the power over death to bring and take his people to himself. The point of our text is that Elijah was taken to the true Canaan. Canaan was just a type. Canaan was just a type. As wonderful as the 21st century is, as wonderful as the city of Dallas is, as, the one, as wonderful as our, as our fabulous homes are and our cars are, where are we right now according to the storyline? Where are we? We're not home. 
We're in the wilderness. The new covenant expression of the wilderness. We are not home, not even close, until we are taken after death to be with the Lord Jesus. I want to read to you a beautiful story. Hopefully, we can just set politics aside for a moment and appreciate this for what it is. Regardless of where you are on the whole Civil War, Southern General thing, you can just appreciate this, follow this. Thomas J. Jackson, otherwise known as Stonewall Jackson, was an incredible, godly, Christ-loving man. He wasn't perfect by any stretch, had blind spots, but if you read a biography about Thomas J. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, he did amazing things for the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God. After being wounded by friendly fire by someone from North Carolina, on the way back, he was dropped from his gurney, and he landed on a stump that wounded his lungs. So in addition to being shot, he had a massive wound to his lung, and it became clear he would not survive. The medical director of his corps was named Dr. Hunter McGuire. And following Stonewall's death, Dr. McGuire provided a firsthand account of his passing. Stonewall had always wanted to die on the Lord's Day. All of this 100% factually accurate. About daylight on Sunday morning, Dr. Dr. McGuire writes, Mrs. Jackson, who had been brought to him, informed her husband, Stonewall, that his recovery was doubtful and that it was better that he should be prepared for the worst. He was silent for a moment and then said, quote, it will be infinite gain to be translated to heaven. He advised his wife in the event of his death to return to her father's house, and he added, you have a very kind and good father, but there's no one so kind and good as your heavenly father. After a moment's pause, he asked her to call me, meaning Dr. McGuire. Quote, Dr. Anna informs me that you have told her that I am to die today. Is it so? When he was affirmed, I'm sorry, when he was answered in the affirmative, he turned his eyes toward the ceiling and gazed for a moment or two as if intense thought and replied, very good, very good, it is all right. And then he tried to comfort his heartbroken wife and told her that he had a great deal to say to her, but he was too weak. A colonel came into the room about one o'clock and asked, and Stonewall asked him, who is preaching at headquarters today? Because it was Sunday. When told that the whole army was praying for him, he replied, thank God. They are very kind. He says, it is the Lord's day. My wish is fulfilled. I've always desired to die on a Sunday. His mind now began to fail and wander. And he frequently hallucinated and talked as if he was in command on the field, giving orders in his old way. A few, min- few moments before he died, he cried out in delirium, quote, order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front rapidly. Tell Major Hawks. And then he stopped. And with total clarity of thought, He left the sentence unfinished, and a smile of ineffable sweetness spread over his face. He he cried quietly, 
And with an expression of relief, he said, and I quote, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And then without pain or the least struggle, his spirit passed from earth to the God who gave it. Is that not beautiful? Let's cross over the river, the River Jordan, as it were, and rest under the shade of the trees. That is exactly what Elijah did. He crossed over the river. He was taken to be with the Lord to rest under the shade of the trees. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 73? You guide me with your counsel and afterward what? You will take me to glory. What did Jesus say in John 14? My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and what? And take you to be with me where I am also. Beloved, that is the bedrock hope for the people of God. That is where our story ends. The wife of one of my dear out-of-town friends, you may know, Robbie Rucker, back from PCPC, who was a dear brother in the Lord, was the worship director there for many years. They moved to Ohio. His precious wife, Amy, far too young, just passed away from complications to, pant, uh, uh, to cancer. Robbie and their two children, Benjamin and Elise, are absolutely heartbroken. I can guarantee you this, Amy Rucker is not heartbroken. After her long fight, she has crossed over the river and she sits under the shade of the trees. What did Paul say in Philippians? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, that is our hope as the people of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, to live is Christ to die is gain, to be with you is far better. Father, give us a view of heaven, of glory, of the new heavens and the new earth. Give us a picture of what it will be like when you make all things new. Father, help us to understand that it's the Garden of Eden, but so much better where we will forever and ever and ever and ever, time and eternal, be walking with you, as it were, in the cool of the day, forever. Father, may that great day where we'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory change the way that we live in this one. We pray this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.